0: This episode of Disability After Dark is brought to you in part by La Petite More. La Petite More is a Hamilton, Ontario, Canada-based sex toy company operated by Haroon Sperling. A 1NB operation, they are committed to body safety, body positivity, and a gender-neutral approach to their toys. Head to PetiteMore.ca to check them out and be sure to use coupon code AFTERDARK for free shipping at checkout. PetiteMore.ca Adult. Queer. Safe. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by the worker-owners of Come As You Are. Come As You Are has the peculiar distinction of being the world's only worker-owned cooperative sex shop. With feminist and anti-capitalist values, Come As You Are only carries sexuality products that they truly believe in at the lowest price possible. Get free shipping at www.comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Cripple Content Creations presents Disability After Dark, the premier podcast shining light on sex and disability, with your host, Andrew Gerza.
1: Disability After Dark, with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability.
0: Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Let's shine a bright light on sex and disability together. Connect with me on Twitter at AndrewGurza, that's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A, and use the hashtag DisabilityAfterDark. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Disability After Dark. This is one that I am so excited to be bringing to you. This is one that I wanted to do for a while now, and you may have seen on my social media... ...that I posted this a few days ago about, about this particular episode that I was going to do it and it was, gonna, it was happening. And I've been really excited about it. And so this one, let me tell you about it right now. I actually got a lot of my inspiration for this episode from listening to an episode of... ...The Nancy Podcast with Kathy 2, where she speaks to her mom about coming out as queer and what that means for her in both a familial context and a cultural context as an Asian-American person. And I found that really fascinating and really kind of heartbreakingly powerful, the way her and her mother were trying to navigate this coming out experience. And I thought that I wanted to share with you my experience of coming out with my mom. Now, it was vastly different than that of than that of Kathy too on the Nancy podcast. But it was really important for me because I have a perspective of what coming out meant for me. but I wanted to understand what coming out as queer and disabled meant for my mom and what disability meant for her and kind of the you know what understanding, a different perspective, and what that meant for her raising a disabled child, and, and then finding out your disabled child is queer, uh, and finding out what that, what all that means, and all those things, and how they, how they intersect, and how they, how they come together to to bring me to where I am right now, and bring us to where we are right now, our relationship. So, I sat down with my mom. Her name is Cher St. Kitts, She's an amazing lady. And we sat down together for an hour to record this interview, and I really didn't say much because I wanted to hear her perspective. I was there, obviously, for my coming out, but it was really important for me to listen to her and to understand what my coming out and what all those things and her experience of raising a disabled child meant for her. I found it really powerful and really exciting, so... I'm going to, now you're going to hear the interview, so I hope you enjoy my interview with my mom, Sheriffs Saint Kids, right here on Disability After Dark. Hello, Sheriffs Saint Kids. thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark, how are you today?
1: Fabulous, great to be here, Andrew. I am
0: really excited that you're here, because I think you're, well, you're my mom, and <laughs> I think so. And uh, and it's the first time you've ever been on the show, so yay. Yay. Um, I told the audience a little bit about why I wanted to have you on the show. Why don't you introduce
1: yourself? Hi, audience. My name is Cher St. Kitts. I'm proud to be Andrew's mom. What else do you want me to tell them, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> What
0: else do you want? Do you want to tell the audience? About <laughs> well, you?
1: I think the word "proud" is pretty important. Uh, I'm very proud that Andrew is my son, and to have been able to help such a great person come forward in this world and make such a great difference for so many. So I'm a very proud mama.
0: Yes, yes, you are. So um, I this this episode is going to be going to be both of us. Talking about my coming out experience, but before we get to all of that fun stuff, and that was, that was, can you believe it, mom? That was already 18 years ago. Wow. Um, 18 years ago when you were 16. Yep. I was just about 16.
1: I was five.
0: (laughs) Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So, why don't you share with the audience kind of um, my. My well, tell the tell the tell my birth story because I like that story, and it'll it'll give the audience an idea of all the things that you went through,
1: bringing me into the world. Um, well, Andrew was our second child, so Heather, his uh, sister, uh, was born exactly on her due date. Everything about her birth, my pregnancy, everything was perfect textbook. I mean, not very many babies are born exactly on their due date unless they are brought in by with a little help so Andrew's due date was August and I was going on a trip to California with Heather and and Andrew's daddy uh Harley just for a getaway I was only six months pregnant so we thought we'd have a little getaway before our second baby arrived and have some fun with relatives over in Laguna Beach so we took off and I went to see the doctor before we left and he said yeah you're fine six months everything's good just go have a good time so I'm on the airline on the aircraft, and I bent over the front underneath to get something, to lift up something. I felt a funny little sort of a cramp, but I thought, oh, "So what, whatever I'm bending, I'm so pregnant, I can hardly see my feet." We get to there, we're good. We had a nice day. Uh, the next day, we had a we were invited to go to a Cinco de Mayo party, um, a Mexican Independence Day party. So we went, and it was just a great party. And um, during the party. Suddenly, I started to have major cramping, and I had some water break, and um, everybody, it was a lot of doctors, because a lot of um, Harley's relatives are doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs, so everybody was running around trying to figure out what, so I ended up, I had to get an ambulance, and they sort of put my, we were down in this lagoon, so they had to get me up the stairs, so my feet were up, my head was down, they were trying to keep the ambiotic fluid. Uh, the the fluids inside that were just trying to gush out from this. I was only six months pregnant. So they rushed me to the, you know, emergency. We went through all of, oh my God, what's going on? Well, this water was broken. Once the water's got gone, they have to look at what's next for birthing because the baby cannot be in there without its water. So after 24 hours, they decided that uh, they couldn't take andrew by C-section, so we had to go through the birth canal, which very horrific for the mother who knows too much, because at that moment, obviously, the birth canal is not ready. So you know that your baby is going to have to go through a terrible journey from inside to outside that's not ready. So this is what we went through. It was, it, uh, I can't even describe it, so let's just leave it at that. It was very difficult very, very difficult, and there wasn't much they could do to help me in terms of painkillers or anything. It just had to happen. So it did, and Andrew came forward, and he was translucent, almost transparent, and you could see every vein in his body. You could see his teeny tiny little fingers and his little tiny toes, and he was so teeny tiny and so um, upset from the birth canal and the experience that when I first saw him, I think I kind of I kinda yelled or screamed because I was so scared for what was I was seeing and I you know, I've studied anatomy and I know a lot about these things and I was very, very worried. But all of a sudden there he is, he's having a nice cry and which is what we all want to hear and they rush him off and he's under, you know, inspection and they're clearing out things and he only weighed two point two pounds and he ended up in an isolate unit and he remained during the 1984 olympics which is when he was born i mean this guy comes in with a bang 1984 olympics no place to stay had to find accommodations had stayed down there for three months while mr andrew gerza developed from this little 2.2 pounder into 4.5 pounder uh, after several surgeries a line into his heart to save him sepsis he endured blood poisoning uh, he had to have a double hernia operation. All these things were happening to this little teeny tiny person that was just trying to learn how to eat. Um, you know, I, I made sure that he had breast milk, which of course he couldn't take for me because he's not strong enough, so it had to go into tubes and then we had to get the tubes into his tummy and his life was in an isolate. So I used to be there all every day and also taking care of his two year old sister Heather, trying to make her life as normal as possible. Um, I would be in there and I thought, you know, I can't be here all the time. So I made, at those days we had a Walkman. So I made recordings on the Walkman and I put the earphones down into his isolate and I instructed the nurses to change the tapes every few hours. And on the tapes, I was singing him lullabies, um, I was talking to him about how great he is, how beautiful he is, how important it is that he survive and come and join us and come and play with us and be my son and how much we loved him and we loved him and we loved him. And I had my voice in there because I felt if he was still in my womb, he would be hearing me talk all the time. And I do talk a lot, as you might be able to tell. So... Yeah, that's what we did. I also just played him little tunes that we liked to play, had Heather's voice on the tape, had his father's voice on the tape, so that his family, as much as I could provide, was in the isolate with him until he was able to come home, which was right around his birth, his proper birthday, which would have been August the 1st or the 2nd or the 3rd, somewhere in there, is more or less when we came home with baby Andrew. So that was the birthing of a child that was then found out the following, we didn't know until February the 14th, Valentine's Day, in fact, of the following year that Andrew actually had cerebral palsy and that chances were good he wouldn't be able to walk. They were saying that he might have visual problems. He, would, he may not be able to hear properly. And they couldn't really tell us the extent of any of the damage because it was brain damage. Caused by lack of oxygen during those three months when he was in the isolate, which happened to him more than once. Uh, Lack of oxygen to the brain causes brain damage. Cerebral palsy just means whatever damage was done during infancy. uh, Then you know, if the brain's not able to fix itself, then it'll come out as the child grows. So this is how we knew that on February the fourteenth, that Andrew had cerebral palsy and why he couldn't sit up like other babies could, and why he couldn't roll over and. Just stuff like that. So that was the beginning of life with my dear, beautiful son, Andrew.
0: It's kind of an interesting. I'm just listening to that story. I've heard that story before. It's interesting that it happened to all of us on Valentine's Day.
1: Yes. The news on Valentine's Day, at the time, it seemed like a cruel thing. And I remember driving home from Valentine's Day with my baby in the back in his, his baby seat in the car and just crying all the way home because I, first of all, didn't even know what cerebral palsy meant. I had a lot of learning to do. I knew about everything else he'd been through, which was tons, in the hospital in, in Orange County uh, in LA, but I didn't know about cerebral palsy. And when she said, oh, of course, you know, your baby has cerebral palsy, I was like, well, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. So, uh, it, she gave me a brief description, and obviously, it sounded like they really couldn't tell me much. Could be anything from he'll never walk to he'll never his vision will be gone till he'll be deaf till he'll be till he'll be stupid. He can't. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. To the fact that he would not be able to think clearly and all of these kind of things. And so I cried all the way home. And then we learned and learned and did therapy and learned and just decided that whatever came we would deal with each thing as it came so that's what we did
0: and that is what we did we that we've always done that together you always said when i was younger it was you and i against the world and that's always kind of been true um but thank you for sharing that story because i think people don't consider when we talk about and this show is is It is about sex and disability, but I think it's important to talk about when a parent is dealing with that kind of stuff. And to to understand how I became so awesome to do this work, we had to find out why. And so thank you for sharing how I came into the world with the audience. Um, I'm curious, Mom, what was your perception of disabled people prior to, to having one so close in your life?
1: Well... You know, they say ignorance is bliss, but it really isn't. Um, I was ignorant. And whenever I saw someone in a wheelchair or whatever, because I had no point of reference in my life, I was frightened. Uh, I found them frightening. I was afraid to approach, afraid to say hello, not sure if they were only physically or and or mentally involved, so not sure of what to do, frightened in as much as my behavior could be wrong. Not because I was frightened of the person, but frightened that I would behave badly or do the wrong thing. So I did not approach persons in wheelchairs and probably to a large degree just sort of, you know, do what everybody does, which is kind of look the other way. Um, Or with some people, they just stare, but I'm not that kind of guy. I probably would have just said, okay, there it is and kept moving. So, yeah, I had a very um, limited understanding of persons with special needs before you were born.
0: And right. And so obviously that, that changed when I came along. How do you think when I came along that your, your understanding changed or had to change?
1: Well, it's sort of like when I had my first child. People who don't have a child or have never adopted a child, or you just, your whole world changes when you have a child. Then when you have a child with special needs, your whole world changes again. Perception is all we have, and you don't perceive something until you understand it or you put you're, you're into it. So suddenly, having a child with special needs, I began to realize how ignorant I was before that, and how ignorant Joe, who the common, or you know Janice, whoever it is, the common person, not because they are mean, they're just ignorant. They just ignorant, and I was ignorant. So I began to learn and become a champion to help bridge the gap between the ignorance and my disabled son. So to empower my disabled son to understand that he has rights less everyone else that if he's being ignored in a crowd that he needs to put his head up and, and stand up for himself, whether or not that's physical doesn't matter. You stand up for yourself always and keep your power. And, um, you know, I just to tell him a little funny things like, okay, well, Look, because we'd go in a mall and everybody would just pretend he wasn't there. Meanwhile, he's in a 200-pound wheelchair that's electric and he's this guy running around the mall. It's not a good thing to ignore, really. You know, he's, he's got wheels. So I said to him, here's how we're going to do this. If it's a little baby child or a senior person that's walking into you, which is what they used to do all the time as if he didn't exist, then you let them do it and you'd be calm. If it's just a regular person who's just totally ignoring you, well, I think you should just go ahead and keep going. So if you sort of hit them a little, oh, well, they're going to learn. Not very nice in a way, but on the other way, he wouldn't hurt anybody, but it would be a hell of a wake-up call. Because I right. could never believe how no matter where we went, people didn't see Andrew. They didn't see Andrew. Meanwhile, he's in this big chair with all this stuff. Or we'd go to a restaurant, and they're like, well, what does he want? And I'm like, well, why don't you ask him? Because don't be afraid to ask if the person is mentally involved. You'll find out, and it'll be okay. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. <laughs> Just go ahead and engage. So for me, it was a really huge learning process also to see that persons with special needs were often left out, of not included, um, extra things weren't done. Like Andrew wanted to go to a baseball game, a Blue Jays game with his classmates, And the best his school was willing to do was to offer me to allow me to drive my van with Andrew down there. I said, no, I'm not. Andrew's going with all the kids. He's one of your students. You have to get a bus that Andrew's wheelchair can go in. This is not my problem or Andrew's problem. This is you, including Andrew, in the activities. And they were kind of hesitant. They didn't want to do it because it's going to cost them maybe an extra hundred bucks or something. So we called the Blue Jays and said, hey, guess what? this school's coming down to see your game and there's this is andrew's story guess who had a bus right away oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah it's true you have to stand up and i learned that in every instance like going to kids camp they did not want him because hey he's so disabled oh well he's disabled he's just as important as you so you need to get another aid to help so that if guys like him are in the camp they're okay and so that's Andrew and I did a lot of forging of new roads in York Region.
0: Yeah, we did. And, and for listeners who don't know where York Region is, it's a little, it's a little hamlet outside of Toronto where I grew up. Um, where we, all of us grew up there, actually. My whole family grew up there. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk about when I was a teenager, growing up at home with you. Before I came out, what were your ideas of the relationships that I might have with people as a disabled person?
1: Well, we did a lot to make sure that you had access to as many friends who would come over. You did have really good friends who did sleepovers, and we had birthday parties where we invited your entire class, so we'd have like 30 kids here running around. Um, We tried everything we could to make it really easy for your friends to be with you here, and um, you had a dog named Flash. Flash was a beautiful golden retriever, which was good because people want to talk to you when they see your beautiful dog. So, And all that said, you had friends. You always had friends. So, you know, I mean, I always thought the usual that every mom thinks that, you know, you're going to meet a girl and whatever, and, the, you know, you'll meet people. It could be more difficult. Definitely will be because of the wheelchair. It's an obstacle in many people's minds. But it's not a true obstacle. It's just people's minds like mine was before I had a special needs person in my family. So I always felt that because you were so much fun and you had a beautiful smile and you're tremendously handsome because you look just like me, that for sure (laughs) you wouldn't have any problem having a meaningful relationship. It would be more difficult because of the chair, but then the chair would protect you from persons that are not deserving of someone as wonderful as you. So I kind of found that as a nice balance.
0: And I would say that in a in a sense, that protection idea is still is still holds true um, even today in the relationships that I make, because if people can't deal with it, then I just don't deal with them.
1: Well, they're not the kind of people that are at your soul level, so it's okay. It's not it's not a judgment, but they're not the right people for you.
0: Yeah, and I I, I agree with that. And I think the chair has provided me an out when I needed it, if I needed it. Yeah. But, um, so let's go back to April 22nd, 1999, the day that I, that I came out to you. Oh, goody. Uh, right. <laughs> it was so long ago now. <laughs> Talk to me about what you remember about that day. And then if you would, please share your memories of mine coming out.
1: oh I don't remember a lot. I mean, you have to realize I was a mom at that time working about 80 hours a week. Um, I had my own salon, and um, I had to have people coming in the house helping me with the kids and with Andrew. And, um, generally, I would get a nanny from Quebec because I couldn't afford you know, a real nanny. So this would be someone I would help them, and they would help me. So I had a house full of kids, four kids, one nanny, two cats, a dog, And then whatever home care Andrew needed to get coming in constantly. So it was an open door swinging door in this place constantly with people just running in and running out and doing stuff. So I was always running after getting the meal ready. Did I have to go to work and coming back from work and then not have enough time? Then there was laundry. It's the crazy life of raising four kids and then also having one that has special needs and then also having no money and trying to always make ends meet. So it's a blur honestly and then in the middle of this blur on that particular day in the middle of a blur Andrew and I got into an argument about something i can't remember what but we were going back and forth about something and i just and you know i'm very honest i mean perhaps i should have more filters but i just don't so <laughs> i i said to him well what is your problem what are you gay like i was like teasing him, like, you know, you're going through all this, whatever we were going through, we were trying to, I was trying to get him to understand something or we were trying to share something. And it was just, he was being so, so, I don't know, negative, or I mean, obviously, and he just looked at me.
0: I was being a teenager. I was being 16. Yes,
1: he was his age. He was what he was, you know, and he was, oh, he was so interesting. Anyway, he looked at me, his eyes locked on mine at that moment, and he was very angry with me. His eyes locked on mine, and he said, yes, I am. And I stopped. <laughs> I stopped cold. I'm like, what? Suddenly, every other emotion or whatever it was is gone. We're <laughs> a lot, I was locked on eyes, looking at each other I said, you're gay? Are you? He's like, yes, I'm gay. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and I'm like it was so weird because I I'm so close with you and I didn't know and I didn't know and I honestly didn't know and how did I not know this I'm with you and I'm your mom and you know I'm the one helping you with all your personal issues and uh, uh, surgeries and operations and everything else and then I began to put the pieces together that it made a lot of sense what's and funny remember, about that before I told you part of me
0: before I told do you remember? Like six months before I told you the school was concerned. Yes, I do. I
1: was just going to say. So about six months before that, we had an episode from the school calling us with a complaint because the guy that was Andrew's caregiver at school who would put him on the toilet so he could do his stuff and that had made a couple of things, two little things that happened, had made a complaint that he thought that Andrew was, I don't know what, that his complaint was Andrew was gay and it scared him. Now you have to remember, Andrew cannot transfer from his chair. He cannot walk. He can never get out of his chair. The only way he's moving from A to B is if you're helping him. So what the threat was there, I'm not really sure. Pretty sure Andrew wasn't doing any sort of, you know, fiddling with his junk in front of this guy. I mean, sure that wasn't happening. Could be that he had an erection. Okay. Well, he was 16. This happens. this guy's all feeling confluttered about this. And I'm like, well, so finally, I went to the school to talk to us. Well, so what if he is gay? At this point, I don't know my son is gay. What if he is gay? Can you please tell me what the threat is to anyone here if he is gay? Has he done something inappropriate? And could he? (laughs) And the answer was no and no. And I went, well, then you guys need to figure all this out and get over yourselves because I don't think he is, but if he is, so what? And if he gets an erection, you tell me what 16-year-old boy doesn't get one every 15 minutes. Who cares? Like, (laughs) it's the job. So then we carry on. I think it was, was it like a month later that the Heather episode happened? Say again? The Heather episode. (laughs) The episode where she felt inclined to draw something on your bum.
0: (laughs) My sister, my sister. Hi Heather. Decided probably about I want to say two or three months before the school was worried. No, around the same time that the school was worried, my sister wanted me to join the Pen Fifteen Club, and I wanted to be cool like my bigger sister, so I agreed to. Now Pen Fifteen is penis, but I didn't know that I either put didn't put two and two together or didn't care because my sister was doing it. So, <laughs> so so she then wrote, she was helping me pee one day, and at that point I stood up to pee and I held I onto a bar. So she's holding me, supporting me, helping me do my care. And as sisters do, she wrote pen 15 on my bum, <laughs> which I didn't realize or, that I was peeing and trying to direct her. So I was not thinking about that. And then the next day she didn't, Wipe it off or, or take care of it for me. So I went to school with that, which made the my my caregiver very concerned for me and for him, for him. And that's when all of this started. Um. So then, that yeah, then they were very concerned that I was gay and queer. Very very concerned for me and really for themselves. They were concerned that I was going to do something to them. And I remember they they had sent me in to the guidance counselor's office and said, "Well, Andrew, you know, are you having these feelings?" And at the time, I was I was very scared to admit it. So I said, "No, no, of course not. No, no, I'm not." And I was completely having these feelings, not for this particular caregiver, but I was feeling this way. So I didn't say anything because I was six, I was 15 and a half. I was not ready for this. So then, <laughs> then I think during all, during that time. And what you don't know mom is that 2 weeks before <laughs> 2 weeks before I told you I didn't talk to anybody for like 2 weeks and that's why that's why you were so mad at me because I wouldn't talk to you just generally about my day and I wouldn't speak to you because I was trying to figure out how am I going to tell you and how am I going to tell you that I'm gay but also how how does my identity connect with my disability how is all this going to work and so what I was worried about why I was so attitudinal that day was probably because i didn't know how the hell this was all going to come together and i remember you were standing in our we had a red remember the red sink yeah you were standing behind that washing something because you and i had our big fights (laughs) usually (laughs) usually before or after dinner (laughs) dinner. so you would be washing probably salad most likely salad and because we ate a lot of salad at my house and so, you are washing salad, and you said, "What are you gay or something?" And I said, "Yep." <laughs> and then it went from there.
1: Oh. Well, the fun part then is once once that got out. So so I just said it because I was wondering. Well, you know, it was a joke, wasn't? And it wasn't meant in a harmful way. Listen, one of my sisters is gay. I, I really don't have a, a judgment call on it. You are what you are. It is what it is. Which is why I really couldn't understand why he never told me sooner. And why he didn't confide in me and why he was so frightened. So my first questions were all of those questions. Why didn't you tell me? How come I didn't know? How come now I'm finding out Heather knew? I didn't know. Everybody knows. I mean, not everybody. The kids knew. But the mother unit and the father unit don't know. And we're very, you know, look, we're a multicultural family. We don't really have a lot of prejudicial thoughts and we don't want them were very inclusive. So it was like, Oh my God, how come I don't know? And so then I had to start asking all kinds of questions. And I asked him about, okay, and so this guy that was all upset, it was probably because, you know, you did have, and, but on the other hand, it wouldn't matter because if you're just any kid, you would have an erection. It doesn't matter. And there's not a thing you could do to act on it. So, so what? So then I went from that part of all the worry. So you first of all, it was all worry because, all right, look, first of all, you're really physically disabled right? So you got all those issues going on and people have all their old social issues about, like I told you that you don't even hardly exist because you're, you know, not walking on your two feet or whatever. So first of all, you got all that going on. You want to have a mother wants their child to have a beautiful life, have relationships, friends, you know, I don't know about kids. It doesn't matter to me that much, but to have a beautiful life, possibly a partnership if they want. So that's concerning. And then he's in a wheelchair. So then he tells you now he's gay. Now we all know, especially back then. I mean, it's gotten better now, but it's still difficult. That to be gay was some kind of a, a stigma, some kind of a next social. Oh my God, not a great thing. Because why? Not because it's not a great thing, but because people treat you badly because they think they have a right to judge you, and those kind of things. So now the other thing is that I converted to Judaism. So on top of that, Andrew's Jewish. So we <laughs> am having the discussion. I said, "Well, great. Look at here." He's asking me, well, mom, what, you know, what are your concerns? And I'm like, well, okay, so you're disabled. So that makes it a little difficult, you know, to meet people and to get around and do stuff. And then on top of that, which we've always surmounted and I took him everywhere. We did everything. It's no problem. But it is, you know, obviously for other people. Then the next thing is, you know, you're Jewish. A lot of people have their prejudices about Jews and different religions and all of that. So, oh, yay. And then the final thing is now you're also telling me you're gay. I'm like, okay. Okay. How many things did you want to come into this world with that were going to present <laughs> problems or obstacles for you to do what it is I know you have to do in this world? Because I know from the time you were a tiny little infant born that you had great purpose. Because we did sit, we did last rites on you when you were in the hospital because everyone thought you'd never make it. I always knew you would make it. I had no doubt in my heart or mind or soul that you would make it. And I knew that you were a soul with great purpose in this world. And so I'm thinking, okay, here we are now, 16 years later, after the whole birthing thing and getting over the fact that you're not going to ever walk and that you need a wheelchair and all the surgeries and the operations and everything else we went through. Now you're gay. <laughs> okay. Okay, universe. Cool. So when I got over the shock of what it meant in his life and knowing for me it wasn't a shock for me it was just concerned for him. Then I said, "Okay, what kind of gay are you anyway? What are you, Priscilla, queen of the desert gay?" <laughs> and you? I
0: remember at the time, I remember at the time I got so mad. <laughs> After that I came out. I got so angry with you because I was like, "No, mom, that isn't the kind of gay person <laughs> I want to be." No, no. And I remember fighting you on it so hard oh. and telling you, "No, the irony is that four years later, <laughs> four years later in university, I called you in drag. You know, telling telling you what I was gonna that I was gonna go up and do the drag show, which will be a whole other episode. Don't worry, I'll tell everybody about that. <laughs> um, but it, I remember being, I remember you saying to me, "Okay, so what kind of when you watch a sex scene, what who do you watch?" And I remember telling you the guy. And she goes, "Okay, so so you watched." you gave me an example of a movie. And so so you watch Brad Pitt and I said, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, right. And so we had this nice moment where we, I could share that with you. And then, and then you, we went to the video store and you read Priscilla and we, it's, it's, you know, 20 years, you know, given all of my fears, because I was really concerned about telling you about that because I thought just like you thought, okay, he's already disabled. He already has all these things stacked against him in, Terms of relationships and sex and his future life, and now you're going to add this onto that. So, I think <laughs> we shared a lot of the same con- the same concerns, um, and I think you know it's interesting. Like, did so? Was there anything that you was there anything when I told you that that you didn't that you didn't want to tell me at the time because of that you were you wanted to let it just happen? Was there anything that you Anything that you can share now that you didn't then because you didn't know how I would react then and it's been 18 years now?
1: No, I I don't because, you know, like I said, I don't have great filters because I don't choose to. Generally, I like to say something and if I'm wrong, then you tell me. Tell me that I'm wrong. So, no, what did happen that was an interesting sort of sidebar is that um, your stepdaddy, who really is like your, your dad, George, was so worried. He was so scared and so worried because, I mean, he's taking care of you just as much as me. And he was so darn worried that, you know, then the conversation had to be around, what are you so scared of, George? And he was so scared that it was going to take away your quality of life and that people would be mean to you and that, you know, you wouldn't be able to get the things that you needed to get out of life and he wasn't at all, he's not at all um, phobic about gay people. That's not it. He just was scared for his son, for the road that he had. So this was interesting because then he said to you, he said, well, maybe you want to think about it for a month. (laughs) (laughs) And then maybe in a month after you really think about it now that you've told us. You can really see. It. I mean, if I
0: could have been any more of a grandma queen, because we should probably tell people that the night I came out to everyone, the family, was also the eve of his birthday. So <laughs> I had to overshadow my dad's birthday by deciding right, at, right at that moment to to, <laughs> to come out. And I remember he, we were the when it all came out, we were having a surprise party for him. We were hiding in our house. Oh God, that was. Funny. home from work, and I had just told everybody. And he was coming home from work and we were staying up late to surprise him. And I kept saying, mom, please don't tell him, please don't say anything. Cause I was really worried about in my young 16 year old mind. I was worried about, okay, he's my, he's my, he's my dad. And I'm worried about my masculinity and how's he going to view me? All things I think that a teenager, whether they're disabled or not coming out would worry about telling their dad. So I was very concerned. And <laughs> so the next morning, I I hadn't thought that she had told him. So the next morning she told him because she had to because why wouldn't you? So she <laughs> she told him and he goes so so you're gay hey, and I just remember going mom <laughs> please, <laughs> but I mean I it was just so there I mean there was there was a moment because my dad helps me in the bathroom and stuff so there was a moment where I thought how am I going to how is this going to go over? And it was fine and everything was fine. But because I needed so much help and because there was a sense of like, okay, we're two, we're two men together doing this. How is this going to play out? It was a stupid fear, but it was something that I, that I, even now, sometimes not with my dad, but with other people, there's a concern because people think that because I'm queer and I am doing all this stuff, all this work and if I need help in the bathroom that must mean that I'm going to come after them so so it's, so <laughs> it's funny that we yeah it is ridiculous it's funny that we talked about earlier how the school was worried because people are still worried that I'm gonna be you know flirty and I mean I am flirty and I I, Why am, not? I I like to do all of that but I'm not I would never make somebody uncomfortable um but I remember that experience with with George, my dad, so much because, and we had, um, the, one of the moments that I remember from that was we, he used to drive me to my appointments all the time, and we were in the car one day by ourselves, and he, we weren't, we, we were listening to the radio, George is, he talks a lot, but he is a man of few words, and when, when he has something on his mind, he doesn't talk a lot until you get him talking, so we're listening to the radio, and he says to me, so I work in entertainment, and I know a lot of gay people, and it's, It's fine. Don't worry about it. He was at the time a swing cast member for The Lion King. And he goes, I know a lot of really, really gay people and it's okay and don't worry about it. And that was our moment where we, where I knew it was okay because he said, Look, I know all these people. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And so it was just a sweet moment between the two of us because I understood then that all of these things, the disability, the, the, the gay identity, all those things didn't matter and it was going to be okay. And he, and we, I mean, it's not something we openly, he and I talk about, but he, to know that it's okay is a big deal.
1: Yeah, it is okay. And and it would never have mattered. And, and it, 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 we cannot say that it doesn't matter. We have to say it's very powerful. These are powerful tools that came into your life to make you stronger and to show you a pathway to help others. So it's powerful.
0: Yeah. It really is powerful. Um, so one of the things that you said to me right after I came out, I think Heather was there. I think we were all there. And I had had my big cry. And we were we were heading in to, to rent Priscilla. You said, and something, something that I'll never forget that you told me, was that you said um, it wouldn't be easy... You know, it's going to be harder for you because, and I think you said because of your disability and all the things. Um, Can you tell me more about your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, it's normal because with each child, whatever is going on with them, I mean, I only remember being worried, not for very long, but initially I didn't stay. I mean, you're always worried that because of this and because of that, but it makes it harder than what happens when something gets harder. Those who will get stronger. So I always knew that because that's been my experience and many things in my life that were very hard. The harder they are, as long as you stay true to yourself, you become stronger. So as much as it's on one side of worry a little bit, on the other side it's an understanding that if you then help this child with the tools they need to be strong, then there's really not much or nothing actually to worry about. And clearly, given what you've been doing and accomplished and that you live on your own and you're in the distillery district and you have your own podcast and, you know, you're published all over the world and the UK and you've talked all over North America to help persons with um, disabilities and um, sex and the disabled and all of that, it was true. You were strong. You got stronger.
0: I did. But I think it's you know, I think those fears you're having. Um, I think a lot of parents when 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 they're a disabled child, whether they're coming out as queer or whether they're just coming out as you know, identifying with their sexuality, I think there's a lot of concern the parents have and I think sometimes the disabled community doesn't let the parent of the of the person say, like I'm Concerned about this because they want the disabled child to figure it out on their own. But I think those fears are are valid. And
1: well, there's no one to talk to. You see, the trouble was when you were then, who who would I have been able to talk to? Yeah. I've got a gay, disabled child. I'd like to talk to him about sex, which of course we talked about. We're very open about, you know, the general sex. But to actually talk about, okay, you're gay, disabled. How are you going to get sex? Truly, who am I going to talk to? Yeah. At at that time. At least now there's you and, you know, possibly other people that are willing to be on a platform to say to a mom like I was back 18 years ago, yeah, we can talk. Let's talk. Because all those fears you had about coming out, even, had you really been able to talk to, even... A third party, a stranger, somebody who just talks to people about it, a lot of those fears that you had, even though I've never come out as someone against persons of different sexual orientations or any of that, they would have been allayed because you needed what you needed was the comfort and um, acknowledgement and acceptance um, that it's okay from someone else, from someone who can look at it from an objective perspective. It's important, so, uh,
0: and I don't I mean I think even now that was eighteen years ago and i'm, I'm thirty three now and we're still not at a place where there is still isn't there's a handful of people doing this work, and they're they're great, and the activists that I work with are amazing and i I value what they do, and there are a lot of apparently, according to a lot of studies, there are a bunch of queer people with disabilities out there people with c p actually have the highest rate of being queer and disabled I just found out the other day but it's really sad that we still don't have a community yet around us so I think even now if somebody with a disability was to come out and say I'm this they would be hard pressed to find somebody who like that they could look in their eyeballs and talk to sure they can go on the internet and they can all download this amazing podcast because they should
1: but (laughs) it would be
0: hard for them to find a person they could actually speak to
1: well, maybe then this is where now comes full circle. It comes around to say to you, then you need to contact these people at Blurview McMillan, these people where, okay, today a little child was born and he's going to have cerebral palsy and then he's going to grow up and he's going to have to go to these centers, like all these places where they equip wheelchairs, you know, the shoppers people, the Bloorview people, all these people that we went through all of your life. Maybe it's yeah. time then to approach all of them and make sure that in their website areas, because now the world is a little more progressive, they have an area that speaks to this issue. You know, because I know they have a lot of things where they have youth, um, disabled youth, getting together online and talking to each other. But there should be a component in there about sex. And that component should cover not just, you know, regular, you know, sex, but all kinds of whatever it is, like if it's gay, you know, Just a place where they can get more information, and where they know they could get in touch with people like you or the other activists in the community, where they don't have to feel shy that they're gay. It's okay. And also, if they want to talk about sex, somebody who can talk to them, because clearly their parents can't. They don't know. It's just a whole different situation. You're in a wheelchair, or, or you're not in a wheelchair. You can walk, or you can't walk. You, this doesn't work. That doesn't work. So how do you have sex? So it's important information.
0: And I think there should also be spots for the parents too a place yeah. where you could have gone yep. once I came out to you and yep. you, like a spot that isn't with me beside you, a spot where you could say, well, my kid just came out to me and my kid has this disability and they just told me they wanted, you know, they're, they're into to this kind of sexuality. How, how can I support them? And how can I support them and their disability? How do do these two identities go together? And how can I, as a parent, do my job?
1: Clearly, if CP, if those with CP have a higher than normal population rating of persons who are gay, then the Cerebral Palsy Association and, you know, even our sex educators. I mean, sex education should no longer be just about male-female parts going together. Sex education should actually be about sex education for everyone. You know, there should we, we need to get rid of this phobia that came to us from, you know, churches and religiouses and, you know, from persons that really didn't get it. Because truly, even if you read the Bible, gay is gay, and it's always been there, and so what? I mean, all of these old, old beliefs and prejudices need to be outed. And we do this through education. And so I think obviously what you're showing us all is that we need to have a more rounded sex education uh, for uh, people going through our school systems even. I think it should be open discussion in the school system that this should not be something that's hidden and, you know, scary and ew and all of the stupid stuff you hear. And it should not be, it should not be by any organization considered wrong. I just think that's so stupid. you got sheep in the field. Some of them are gay. So what? And so what?
0: <laughs> and lions now, apparently.
1: Well, who cares? Well, why not? I mean, of course. And so, yay. It's part of the natural who we are. It's supposed to be. It is what it is. So anyway, that's what I think. So
0: one last thing I want to ask you about. Tell, tell me about the first Time that you saw me do a do a talk because you because I remember telling you whether I wanted to work in sexuality and disability and and we talked about it and you knew that's what I did but I remember a couple years ago you finally saw me do what I did did that talk change your view of the work I was doing and sex and disability yeah um, I was really
1: happy to come out and uh, I just it's just because a lot of your talks are downtown and I'm sort of way up here so you know me I hate going downtown parking and all the crap so. We went down, Quincy and I decided to go, your brother Quincy and I decided to go and watch a talk. And I guess there was about 100 people, something like that. It was over at uh, some building down by Ryerson or something. And um, uh, I was so interested in the talk. I got so pulled in. I mean, you go in, it's your son, and you're just sitting there, you're going to watch your son. But when I got in there, I got out of that and I was just into the talk and I was just watching this guy and seeing how he related to the audience. I like, I'm a speaker, so I I understand. But what I saw was this guy coming from a place of love, sharing with these audience what he's discovered about sex, sex identity, being gay and sex, being disabled and sex, and sort of setting out a little plan that anybody could follow to engage in sex in a really positive way with a partner who would have special needs, whether it was a gay sexual encounter or a regular sexual encounter. And I was so impressed by it. And I know halfway through you sort of said, okay, well, you know, my mom's here and I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> because you know you got pictures of you up there with your leather, leather straps on and you know quasi naked or naked <laughs> or whatever and i'm sitting there with Quincy and we're both watching and we just were engaged and when you asked me that i really wasn't feeling anything except i was really proud so proud because it takes it takes courage to not just bare your skin but to bare your life and your soul and and, and the things that you you know, the interpretations that other people could never see. But not only that, to give everyone a gift of how to have great sex, whether you're disabled or gay or whatever. And the best part of all that I loved was your whole idea of a storyboard. I think if everybody who's in any kind of relationship with anybody would take the time and sit down and deliver each other a storyboard of what they particularly would love to have in a sexual encounter, the divorce rate would drop more people would be happy, there'd be less crime, the whole world would change. Because there's no, in most relationships, there's no real communication about what kind of sex I need. And I think that's a really important component to any kind of sexual encounter. And I'd never thought about it before I saw you talk about it. So I learned a lot that day. And I was proud.
0: That's great. I, I'm so glad that we could teach each other, yeah. Because it's... without with with all the stuff you talked about earlier, without you kind of making me go up and do things, I don't think I would be in this position that I'm in right now. And I don't think this podcast and this work that I do would exist without your you kind of pushing me to go do it, do things, and not and just try. And if you fall in your face, then okay. <laughs>
1: The good thing is if you fall on your face, everybody sees you, so yay. (laughs) The good thing is there's no bad thing that can happen that won't make you greater. The good thing is having a wheelchair so when you roll in the room, everyone looks over at you because you're different. Therefore, your decision is do I smile at everyone and let them know that, wow, I've arrived, or do I feel sorry for myself? you can tell right away that the wow guy is going to get a very positive response and his life is going to be different than the oh poor me guy, isn't it?
0: And I mean, there you know you know this from, from just talking with me. There are days where I am the poor me guy and that's okay. But when it comes to my job, you sometimes, and I did it last night. I did a talk last night that I was so exhausted and so tired and I didn't want to do it and I did it. And I did my job and I put a smile on and I came home and I had a good cry because I was like, I don't want to... I'm tired of it today, but it's part of the work that we do and talking about this stuff. And I think even when you saw me do that talk a couple of years ago now, it's hard to get out there and do that in front of strangers and show them how great sex and disability is when inside you're like, I don't feel so great about it today, but all right, let's go do it. So it's I'm happy that I can present both sides of it and show that I am not the necessarily the poor me guy, but also talking about how sometimes it feels like crap to talk about it, but it's, it's, it's without my disability and without all the things that you and I went through, I wouldn't have a job. This is now my job. And I'm so excited by what it's, what you, what you as my mom helped me to be able to create.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy that I had the chance because I learned a lot. You taught me the other part of the story is I had a lot to learn. And I had to learn it, and I learned it through you. And, you know, let's face it, every child's an experiment to some degree because you don't come into this world knowing what the hell you're supposed to really do. And you know what you don't want to do from what your parents did that you didn't like, but really, what does that leave? So you were one of the great experiments of how do, you, how do you see all of this and know that it's meant to be great. So what's the road to greatness? Do we focus on the fact that he can't walk? that he should be walking? Or do we focus on the fact that it just doesn't matter if he walks, he can roll. You know, to shift your perception and your focus. Yes, all of us feel boohoo, poor me. It's part of human existence. But do we focus on that? Or do we focus on the greatness and the joy and the love and the fabulous things that are all around us all the time? and in juxtaposition to other persons in the world who sleep on mud floors, who don't have enough food to eat, who are in war zones, and all of the rest of it. If we understand that we are so lucky, and we take that joy, and it's every one of us every day, especially in this crappy weather we're having here in Toronto, it's very hard not to have, you know, sad or something. Then this is how we take control of the outcomes of our lives. And You were tested your entire life when I used to make you crawl up the hall, when you would cry because you didn't want to, but I wouldn't let you get away with not doing it, when you would cry, when you had to go in your stander, and I'd be out in the hall crying too, but I'd never cry in front of you because you had to do this, and this was important. (laughs) These were important milestones where you had to do it, and it doesn't have to be nice, but it had to get done, and you did it. So that's part of the reason you're so very, very strong, because you had to be.
0: I, I thank you. I, I, I think it's true. But the, part of the reason why I'm so strong is because I had to be, but partially because you pushed me to be. I wouldn't allow it. Otherwise. Thank you. And
1: did I ever feel sorry for you?
0: Not that I, no. No. Not the, the answer not is clearly
1: no. And if I, I did, saw. I'd kick myself. No. Can't feel sorry, because feeling sorry would never help you. And also, let's don't forget that you're extremely intelligent and very manipulative. <laughs> let's not forget that old chestnut. So hey, everybody also, who
0: might want to date me, just know I'm super intelligent and
1: manipulative. <laughs> <laughs> it also was always a chess game between us. Always a chess game. So It was. It's, uh, it was fantastic. And um, I always knew you'd do something like this, because... You used to be in your bedroom with your tape recorder. You remember? You used to be recording shows. In fact, I have some of them on tape, which you should share with your view, your listeners. Oh uh,
0: well, before this comes out, then I'm gonna have to, I'll have to get it digitally. Oh <laughs> wait, I'm, I was gonna do this the week after next, but I'm gonna hold off and wait to get this tapes.
1: Hysterical! He had his own talk because. show. It was just so great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, we're gonna to have to wait on that. But is there any do you have any last words for parents of kid of kids with disabilities who might be wanting to talk about their sexuality or or advice for kids with disabilities who want to talk to their parents? Anything you want or any last things you wanna add generally?
1: Well, I think as long as you go with love and you know, either way, the child or the parent, if you suspect maybe the child is having some sexual identity issues, it's always there's nothing wrong with just saying, "Hey, yes, you know, I've noticed something. This. What is there? Something? You know, are you feeling different? What do you like? Just open the door to it and say, What do you? What are you thinking?' Uh, the other way for the kid, just to, if you know that that's basically who you are. There's only two things that motivate us to do anything in this life. One is love. One is fear. If you're being motivated by fear, it's not probably going to turn out too good. So, check why you do or don't do something. If it's because you're afraid. I mean, it's different if it's a burning house. Don't be running in there. I get that. That's clear. But in our emotional selves and our senses, if you decide what's the decision that I should make out of love, I think you'll find always that decision will serve you better because you're doing it with grace and ease and with love. And love begets love even if sometimes it's hard and somebody will do something and think, well, I went with love and then they did this. This is whatever it is that they did, is a lesson for you and a lesson for them. In the end, it'll turn out positive. If it's all out of fear, everybody just gets hurt and it'll turn out negative. It's real simple. You can tell by just asking your inner voice, they'll tell you. So that's what I would say. If you're having indecisions about that, just Balance the scale on one side love on one side fear and go with love. And in my experience, you will always get to where it is you're dreaming to get to.
0: Great. Well, Mom, Cher Sinkitz, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing that. Again, I think it's so, impo- so important. To, and I, I was going to do this episode alone and just share my experience of coming out, but I thought it was so much more... Uh, vibrant to have you come on and and share your experiences as my, as a parent of a disabled child and I think I hope that the audience listening will glean something important from our conversation today.
1: Well, you know, we're coming into American Thanksgiving and it just makes me think to all of your listeners that, you know, I give thanks and I'm very grateful to have had Andrew come into my life and in my world just the way he did. I wouldn't change anything. And I'm grateful and thankful. And I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend with your family and your loved ones.
0: By the time people hear this, it'll be
1: past Thanksgiving,
0: but totally, (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Yes, I hope that all of your Thanksgivings were amazing. Um, So thank you so much, Mom. And we will, I would love to have you back for another show sometime.
1: Okay, honey. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye.
0: Okay, so that was my interview with my mom, Cher St. Kitts, on my coming out to her as both queer and disabled, and what I loved about that interview was her showing that a lot of the fear that she had as a younger person before I came into her life mirrors a lot of the fear that a lot of people have in building relationships with disabled people generally, and until you encounter somebody with a disability, none of this stuff makes sense to you. And hearing that from my mom, hearing that she felt the same way until I arrived, means that all of us can have our views changed if we encounter somebody with a disability. One of the things I think that was really important that she talked about and also touched on during our interview was the fear she had for me to build relationships once I come out and her telling me that things would be different and would be would be slightly more challenging because of my disability once I came out and all, how all those things intersected for her and for us when we talked about what my future would look like after I came out. So it was a really it was really interesting and really powerful for me to hear this from her side and hear what this meant for her. I want to, of course, thank my mom, Cher and Kids for sitting down with me and I hope you enjoy the interview. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disability After Dark, the premier podcast shining light on sex and disability. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, read my blogs, book me to bring sex and disability to you, or you simply want to leave a review of the podcast, Head over to www.andrewgerza.com. Also, if you're listening to this program in iTunes, please rate and review us so more people can find the show. Also, leave us a like on our brand new Facebook page at Facebook.com/slash Disability After Dark. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners. Just a brief production note. I know I've been changing the dates of when the show actually gets released over the last few weeks. One day it's Sunday, then it's Monday, then it's Friday. So look, I've decided to change the date permanently of the release for this show to be on Fridays. I I'm not going to change it again. It was too. I was just trying to see what worked and what didn't work and what I liked. And I figure if you can get free music on iTunes on Fridays, why not get a free brand new episode of Disability After Dark, right? So, the new episodes will be coming out to you on your podcast apps Fridays, and I'm not sure what time, it could be in the morning, could be in the afternoon, I'm going to just publish it as I see, ready on that day. Alright, so I wanted to thank you for sticking out with the scheduling changes, and thank you for listening to the premier podcast, Shining Light on Sex and Disability, Disability After Dark Copyright Notice This program was created and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations with music by Chris Sujiucci. Any and all materials including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission